Well, have you ever seen something like impossible and you tried to explain it to other people, like you were trying to explain to your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your, like you're, you're trying to explain it, but they're not getting it, they don't understand, and they're looking at you like you're crazy. A few weeks ago, uh, we were having a elder meeting, our church is led by a board of elders, and we were having an elder meeting at one of our elders' house, his name is Kobe Colley, and so we're all meeting outside, and, and it's, it's, it's nighttime, and about halfway through this meeting, Mark Tatum, and I see something in the sky. It was a cloudy, hazy thing that moved through the sky very quickly and it had light. And as it moved just right over the neighborhood, it moved very quickly through the sky and then it just disappeared. Like it was gone in a flash. I saw it. They saw my face kind of look up and kind of like, what, like, what is that? Mark looked at it. We were the only two that saw it because it was gone in an instant before the other guys could turn around and see it. And they're like, what did you see? And I'm like, uh, well, I don't know, you know, uh, and, and Mark and I tried to explain, I'm glad Mark saw it too. Cause I was going to think starting to think I was crazy. And I said, well, this is kind of what I saw. Mark was like, yeah, that's kind of what I saw. And they're kind of like, what? Like, there's not a cloud in the sky. It's totally clear. And yet this cloudy substance moved through the air with the light with coming with light coming from within it and then it just disappeared in the sky. Now I know some of you are like, bro, what are y'all doing at your elders meetings? Like, and can I come? Uh, <laughs> It was nothing like that, I, 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 prom I, I promise. We tried to explain it to the other guys. They were kind of making fun of us. They didn't believe us. Uh, I think it was a JV angel, like a B-team angel in training that just didn't know how to hide itself yet, right? And, and so that's what I think. Now, I know some of you are probably gonna have some practical, logical, you know, reason for what I saw. Just don't tell me, okay? Just don't tell me. Let me believe my JV angel story. All right. So sometimes we see things that are hard to explain. We try to explain them to other people and other people just start getting it. Like it's just not registering. Well, today we're going to see some ladies that see Jesus risen from the grave. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know how impossible that might be, or that would sound. Jesus was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. He was laid in a tomb. He is dead, dead, right? I mean, it wasn't like he just kind of swooned as some people would like to believe that he just wasn't really dead and somehow bruised, bloody, and maimed. He appeared to his disciples and it changed their world and it changed their lives. That just, that's impossible, okay? No, he, he was dead. We have scholars today. We talked about this even last week. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association has determined that Jesus was dead. There's no doubt about it. It's been scientifically proven that Jesus was dead. And yet days later, some women are going to see Jesus risen from the grave. They're going to try to explain this to the disciples and the disciples aren't going to believe them. They're going to think these women are crazy. They don't believe what the women say 
they saw. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the gospel of Luke. And if you got your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We've been challenging you to study the gospel of Luke with us, not just in here, but in our city groups. Those are our small group Bible studies. Those are all kind of picking up and launching and kicking off of the fall. Now's a great time to get into one of our small group Bible studies. We call them city groups. If you're not in one, now's a great time to get in one because lots of new people are joining these groups and they're kicking off for the fall. You can sign up for one of those on the connect form on our app. Just check that you're interested in small groups and Pastor Brandon will be in touch with you. We've been challenging you to study the gospel of Luke with us through our daily devotionals. This week, Monday through Friday, we're going to break down these same exact verses. We're going to talk about them with some more commentary and application points and prayer points. And then we challenge you to study the gospel of Luke with your family using the table talk resource, the daily devotionals and our table talk Every week or under the Bible study tab on our app. The table talk is a resource for families so that you can get around a table, maybe at lunch today or at dinner tonight, and talk about with your kids what you learned through our study of the gospel of Luke. Because your kids right now, our students at 1130, will study these exact same verses. Every week, our church covers and kids, youth, and here we cover the same verses, we cover the same material to keep families on the same page. And the table talk's a great resource uh, to talk with your family about what God is doing and how he's speaking to you through the gospel of Luke. Right now, I wanna challenge you to download our app. If you haven't downloaded it, it's called the City Church Lubbock in your app store. If you have our app, now's a great time to open it. All the verses and points are gonna be there for you so that you can follow along and stay engaged in our time together. Now, I wanna remind you, as I do every week, that we preach verse by verse, especially for new people, Reminder for those of us that come here often, verse by verse, we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because number one, we want to get you off of a very shallow, weak theology that we find on social media, especially in social media memes on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the like. We're trying to get us off of meme theology, bumper sticker theology, even weaning us off of devotional level theology that kind of makes your walk with Christ all about you instead of the glory and fame of Jesus. But then we also believe that preaching this way is more effective at producing disciples of Jesus and producing what we call a remnant people. A remnant is a people of God that remain faithful to God and to his word and to his ways, despite the direction the culture is headed. And so preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we believe will be more, will be more productive at producing a faithful remnant people of God that don't just believe what sounds good, that don't just pursue what feels good, but that pursue the truth of God, that become a people of God's truth. And we have been studying the gospel of Luke for two years now. And next week, we will finish the gospel of Luke. Our two-year journey is coming to an end. We will finish it next week. And then we will begin our our yearly dive into what we call creed. It's our uh, theology series. We'll dive in this year to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna spend three weeks there. Then after that, we're gonna spend three weeks in a series called Countercultural, where we're gonna talk about gender, sexuality, and our approach to a world that is increasingly disagreeing and rejecting what God's word has to say about gender 
and sexuality. So that's kind of where we're headed over the next six or seven weeks. In the past weeks, if you've been here, you know we've been going through Passion Week, Holy Week, right? We talked about Palm Sunday. We, we talked Monday about how Jesus went into the temple and he flipped the tables of the money exchangers. We talked about how on Tuesday, how his authority was challenged and he answers questions about his authority. He talks about his return one day. On Wednesday, we saw that Judas agreed to betray Jesus. On Thursday, we saw the Last Supper and Peter's denial predicted. And we saw Jesus praying in the garden. We saw his arrest. We saw Peter's denial. On Friday, last week, we saw that Jesus, after he was arrested, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was crucified and laid in a tomb. Today is Resurrection Sunday. And we're gonna see that the stone has been moved. The tomb is empty. All the disciples are afraid that they're next but some ladies are gonna see Jesus risen from the grave and it's gonna change everything. So Luke chapter 24, let me give you some background before we dive into Luke 24. Matthew 27 gives us a little bit of background as to what's happened kind of before verse one in Luke chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 27, the religious leaders say that Jesus told, that they go and tell Pilate, they go and tell Rome, and they, they explain that Jesus and his followers said that he would die and that he would rise. And so they ask Rome to put an armed guard at Jesus's tomb so the disciples can't steal the body and then say Jesus rose from the grave. And so Pilate agrees. He gives the okay. He puts two armed guards at the stone or at the tomb. They roll a stone over it. And then it says this, they put the seal of Rome on the stone. This today would be like a police line. This is like, you don't cross this line unless you want to get in some bad trouble, right? So armed guards, seal of Rome on the stone, do not cross, do not, do not go beyond this seal. And the guards that are placed there would be executed if they were to fail in their mission. So that's how serious this is to the religious leaders, to Pilate, and it's how serious the armed guards would have taken their job in front of Jesus's tomb to make sure that nobody messes with this tomb, to make sure that the disciples can't come and take the bodies. Well, those big, tough armed guards see a couple of angels on Sunday morning, and it says that they fell down, passed out in fear. They passed out. They were so afraid. Now, Luke chapter 24, verse one, would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord? You can follow along with me on your Bible in our app or with the verses on the screen. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the son of man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. And then verse eight, they remembered that he, Jesus had said these things. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. You can be seated. It's interesting that all the gospel writers say that it was women who were the first to see the empty tomb. It's women. In in fact, specifically, it's Mary Magdalene that are the first to see Jesus risen from the grave. They're the first to be sent, commissioned with the good news that Jesus has been risen from the grave. And this is compelling evidence that what the gospel writers are saying is true because in the first century, no Nobody, sorry ladies, nobody is going to use women as their eyewitness testimony. They're just not. A, 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 a woman's word was worthless in the first century. And so for the gospel writers to say it was women that saw Jesus risen from the grave is actually very compelling evidence that what they are saying is true because nobody in the first century would have used women as the eyewitnesses, the first ones to see Jesus. In fact, it's not just women. The first one to see the empty tomb and Jesus risen from the grave is the lowliest woman of them all, Mary Magdalene. I mean, of all the women, she has the worst past you can possibly imagine. It's Mary Magdalene who was believed to be a prostitute. It was Mary Magdalene who was believed to be possessed by seven demons that Jesus delivered her of. It was Mary Magdalene that wiped Jesus's feet with her hair. You remember that story? She took that expensive perfume and she poured it out on Jesus's feet and she took her hair and her tears and she wiped and cleaned Jesus's feet with her tears and that perfume and her hair. And Jesus said, because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. It's Mary Magdalene, the the, the lowest of all the women that sees Jesus risen from the grave, that sees the, the empty tomb. And when all the men had fled in fear, it was the women who stayed behind with Jesus and watched him be crucified as he suffered and their faithfulness and loyalty is rewarded. They didn't flee the scene like the men did. And so they become the first ones to see the empty tomb, to see Jesus risen from the grave. Aren't we thankful, guys, for women of God who pray, teach, disciple, show up, who are loyal, who believe God in his word. When many of us, let's be honest, have been very prideful and slow to believe and to pursue the Lord. It's these faithful women of God who did not flee when everyone else did. They get to see Jesus risen from the grave. They're first ones to see the empty tomb, the first ones to be commissioned and to go tell the other disciples about the great news that Jesus is alive. And here's what's interesting. The angels 
remind them. We're going to see this several times here in Luke 24. So if you got like a real Bible or you're taking notes or, or whatever, I would underline this, circle this, write this down. The angels remind the women of what Jesus said and prophesied. They said many times, did you see what they said? Remember what he told you. Remember what he told, we're gonna see this at least a couple of more times in Luke 24 here in just a little bit. Remember what he told you. He told you many times over that he would suffer, die, and then rise again. And the same word should be spoken to us, right? Oh, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, remember what he said, Did you, do you remember what he said? And so to remember what he said, we've got to know what he said to begin with. We've got to know the word of God so that we can remember what Jesus has said. But the angel's going to tell the women and Jesus is going to remind his disciples. Remember what I said? Remember what I told you over and over and over and over again. After Mary sees the empty tomb, the other gospel accounts tell us that a man that Mary Magdalene thinks is a gardener calls her by name and says, Mary. And she hears his voice and she knows it's Jesus. As Jesus had already said, my sheep hear my voice. They know it's me and they follow me. Mary hears the voice of Jesus. She had thought it was just a man gardening outside the tomb, but she hears the voice of Jesus. She knows it's him and she believes and follows him. So the women go to the 10. I say the, the, the 10 because Judas is dead and remember, we know from John that Thomas is not assembling with the disciples because he thinks it's useless. If Jesus is dead, it means he's not who he said he is. He's not really the Messiah. Our hope was misplaced. And so Thomas isn't meeting with the rest of the disciples. And so Mary, the, the, the women, they go back to the disciples. They think they're next. They're hiding. It says they're hiding in a, behind a locked door because they think because of their association with Jesus that maybe they're next, that the religious leaders are coming for them. So the women go to the, the ten and they begin to tell them what they saw. Look with me in verse 11. But the story, watch this, sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping in, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings, and then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Listen, the, the apostles were not these easily duped men that just, oh, you say Jesus rose from the grave, a dead man came back to the life? Sure, that sounds plausible. We'll just believe whatever you tell us. That, that's not the apostles. That's not what's happening here. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief and needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching into their proclamation of the resurrection that we find in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. They were skeptical. And even when the women they know well tell them of their experiences, they refuse to believe that Jesus has been risen from 
the grave. At first, they regard the women as hysterical, telling a tale. In fact, the Greek word that we just read in verse 11, nonsense, the Greek word is used in everyday Greek to refer to delirious stories told by the sick that they, the, about the hallucinations a sick person might see as they suffer in great pain or to tales told by those who fail to perceive reality. This is the way the disciples are viewing the women's story as nonsense. They're failing to perceive reality. So clearly irrefutable evidence was needed to convince these skeptics. In fact, Daryl Bach, theologian, wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, said this, though the church proclaims the resurrection confidently today, the original witnesses, the apostles, had to be convinced that it occurred. Resurrection had been promised by scripture and by Jesus, but only slowly, watch this, grudgingly and methodically did the disciples come to see that it had come to pass. They were skeptics. They were slow to believe, and you would be too. Someone says a dead man came back to life. I'm not gonna believe that unless you were convinced with irrefutable evidence and proof. Well, in verse 12, even though it sounds like nonsense, I love this. It says, however, Peter... Peter, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember Peter's sobbing and his grief and brokenness over his sin and unbelief when he denied Jesus. And, and maybe, just, just maybe, with the news from the women that they've seen Jesus risen from the grave, maybe Peter's starting to think, Maybe I should just trust Jesus at his word instead of trusting myself, right? Everybody thinks it's nonsense. P Peter probably thinks it's nonsense. And yet at the exact same time, however, Peter, he gets up to go check it out. Maybe I should just trust Jesus Quit trusting myself, what I think is best, and just trust Jesus. Verse 13, that same day, two of Jesus's followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. That, that, that's, that's interesting, right? That Cleopas says, what do you mean, like, do you not know what's been happening here over the last few days? In other words, here's what he's saying. Everyone 
is talking about what happened. Everyone knows what happened. If you've been here, you know that Josephus, the Jewish historian, would say that nearly two million Jews would descend upon Jerusalem for Passover. So two million Jews in Jerusalem proper and outside the city. And Cleopas is saying, everyone knows what's happened. Everyone's talking about it. Verse 19, what things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures, the things concerning who? Himself. The writings of Moses, all the prophets, all the scriptures, that's the, that's the Jewish Bible, it's the Hebrew Bible, all the scriptures concerning him. These two are going to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're headed to Emmaus, very defeated. It actually says, Luke actually says that sadness and defeat were all over their faces, right? They're, they're sad, they're defeated. And Luke tells us, at least at the beginning, they can't tell that it's Jesus. It's like, Paul said about the unbeliever, there's a veil over their eyes so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel in Christ. But Paul said, when God removes that veil, all of a sudden, we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the beauty of the cross. We see the wisdom and the power of the, of, of the cross when God removes that veil and allows us to see because we are dead in our sin, Ephesians 2 says. We're dead in our sin. We cannot see the great news of the gospel in Christ and in his cross until God does a miracle and removes that veil that it says the God of this age who is the devil has put over the minds and the eyes of unbelievers. And that veil is over their eyes right now. They can't see who it is that they're talking to. They can't see what the scriptures had to say about Jesus. And so when Jesus asks, what things are you talking about? Like, what, what, what do you mean what's been going on? Their response is, are you kidding? Like, have you been hiding under a rock? Are you clueless? Which is hilarious. And, and there's a little bit of sarcasm here from Luke because the reader knows who the clueless ones actually are, right? 
So what's interesting is that these two on the road to Emmaus reveal that nothing that has happened has happened in some sort of dark back alley or in a corner where there was no one to witness it and to see it. And the same is going to be true about Jesus being risen from the grave. In fact, Paul's going to tell a Roman governor in the book of Acts later about the resurrection of Christ from the grave. He's going to say, we, everyone's talking about it. We, we've all heard about it. None of these things, Paul's going to say this, none of these things, Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul's going to say, none of this was done in a corner. Many people have seen it. Everyone's talking about it. And the two on the road to Emmaus confirm that everyone is talking about what happened. And they say this, everyone believed Jesus to be a wonder-working prophet. It wasn't just the 12. It wasn't just these ladies. They say everyone believed that Jesus was a wonder-working prophet. They were hoping that he was the Messiah, but they said he died. We were hoping he was the Messiah, but he died. You see, the hope of this pair and many others had been that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They saw him as the promised deliverer, but they had a certain picture of what that redemption was going to be. And Jesus dying wasn't in their picture of redemption. Their picture was incomplete. And Christ is going to say, <laughs> The scriptures say the Messiah must suffer before entering his glory. You, you got an incomplete picture of the Messiah. They had no doubt seized on the prediction of the glory of the Messiah, but it was quite another thing to take heart the prophecies that pointed to the darker side of Jesus's mission. But the dark side, Jesus is going to say, is there in the prophecies the Christ must suffer. Read Isaiah 53, where the Messiah is called a lamb who is led away to the slaughter, who dies in his place, in his people's place, not for his own sin, but for their sin. Psalm 22, Psalm 16, there are many prophecies about a suffering servant who is the Messiah who will die. And then Isaiah 53 actually predicts that he will come back to life and enjoy a long life and have many descendants. And so Jesus says, your picture of redemption and of the Messiah, it's, it's incomplete. The Christ must suffer. And so Luke says that Jesus says, you foolish people. We would, we, we would say, now not Jesus wouldn't say this. We'd be like, hey, dummies, right? That's what we would say. That's not what Jesus said. But he says, you, you foolish people. You don't know the word. First of all, you don't know the word of God. And because you don't know the word of God, you're foolish. And then secondly, what you do know, your hearts are hard and stubborn to believe. You're slow to believe. Even what you do know, you're slow to believe the word of God. And so it says this, that Jesus took them through all the scriptures. Now, this is just the Jewish Old Testament canon at this point, right? 
Uh, You've got the Torah, that's the law, the books of Moses, right? The, 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 The wisdom literature, that's books like Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, things like that. And you've got the prophets. It's the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's how they would summarize the Jewish scriptures. And so it says, Luke says that Jesus took them through all the scriptures and he showed them how all of the Jewish scriptures were about him. Now, isn't that interesting? All of the Jewish scriptures, Jesus said, points to him. They were about him. And so I could see Jesus. We don't know what passages he turned to and, 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 and what stories he told, but I could see Jesus going back to the very beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God promised Eve, from your seed, you will have seed that will crush the head of the serpent. It's the first gospel presentation ever. Genesis 3, verse 15. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. I could see Jesus taking them to Genesis chapter 12 and God's covenant with Abraham. Where God promised Abraham that from you, Abraham, from your seed, from your line, all the nations on earth will be blessed. I could see Jesus telling the story of Noah and the ark. And that God offered a way of salvation from his wrath that was being poured out on wickedness through this ark that you could enter into and be saved. And saying that cross is a wooden ark that if you come to it, you can be saved from the wrath of God that is poured out on sin. That cross, that wooden cross will be a covering for you, just like that ark, that wooden ark was a covering for Noah and his family. I could see Jesus telling the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham took his son up on that mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. And God stopped him and said, stop what you're doing. Don't lay a hand on the boy. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. And on that mountain, scholars tells us the same place where Jesus was crucified. And it was on that mountain where that ram was sacrificed and died in Isaac's place so that Isaac could live. I could see Jesus telling the story to these two about David and Goliath. And sometimes we, we miss the real meaning of David and Goliath and we kind of make it about us. But I could see Jesus telling them the real meaning behind David and Goliath. That there's this giant of sin and death that is very scary. But by the power and hand of God, God delivers his people through a servant, a greater David, who defeats the giant of sin and death. I could see Jesus saying, you remember what God promised David? That David would always have a ruler, a king reigning on his throne? 
And Jesus saying, how could David have a ruler on a throne forever? Unless that ruler conquered death himself and would reign forever over the people of God. Jesus explained how all of the scriptures were like a neon sign pointing to him, pointing to the cross. I mean, can't you see Jesus making the clear connection from the sacrificial system of a spotless lamb that died in their place for their sin, the blood from that animal being sprinkled on the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies so that when God looked down on his people, he saw the blood of a perfect spotless lamb that had died in their place for their sin, appeasing the wrath of God. And saying that entire system, it was pointing to the cross. It was pointing to my body being broken for you and my blood being shed for you. Jesus is saying all of the scriptures are pointing to me. And when we try to describe that theological principle, we say the scripture is Christocentric, which means it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The gospels tell the story of Jesus. The apostles write about Jesus and about Jesus's return. It's all about Jesus. And so when we read the scripture, we read it in light of the cross. We read it through the lens of Jesus. We study it Christocentrically because Jesus said, it's all about me. And if it's all about him, you know who it's not all about? It's not all about you. And that's why when you read and study the scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you get this picture. That, wait a second. God is all about himself. He's about his worship. He's about his name. He's about his glory. He's about exalting his son, Jesus. And now your story is about denying yourself and denying your story and living for a story that's bigger than you. It's not about your glory. It's not about your story. This life is about laying down my life and denying myself and picking up my cross and living for a name and a story that is bigger than me. And it's in that denial of myself and living for a greater, grander story, the name and fame of Jesus that I find real life. That's what the scripture is teaching us, that you will find and know life the degree to which you live out Colossians 1, that you were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And when you begin to figure that out and you begin to live that out and obey that, you start to find this is real life. I was made by Jesus and I exist for Jesus, for his name, not for my name. I exist for his story, not my story. So Jesus says, it's all about me. Verse 28, by this time they were nearing Emmaus in the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. And so he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Didn't our hearts burn inside of us. And so they tell Jesus is about to go on uh, and, and they plead with Jesus, stay with us. Stay, don't, don't leave us, stay with us. It reminds me of Joshua in the temple when he was a little boy, Moses' assistant. 
Exodus would say Moses would go out to the tent of meeting where he would meet with God and the glory of God would come down from heaven and fill that tent and all of the nation would fall on their knees and bow down because they knew that God was coming down and his glory was filling that tent and that Moses was meeting with God. And Exodus will say that when Moses had finished speaking with God in that tent of meeting, he would leave. But there was a boy that stayed behind and his name was Joshua, Moses' assistant. Same Joshua that would take over leading the nation of Israel after Moses would die. That, that boy, Joshua, Exodus says he stayed behind in the tent. Moses left and Joshua would stay. And, and, and we don't know why. Maybe God told Joshua. We, we, we don't know why he stayed behind. Maybe, maybe Joshua chose to. Maybe Joshua was like, I just, I just met with God. And there's nothing better than being in his presence. And so I've, I've got nowhere else to go because God's here. This is all that matters. Maybe, maybe Joshua stayed behind because he couldn't get enough. Maybe Joshua stayed behind because he wanted more. Whatever the case, even after Moses left, Joshua stayed. He, he, he had nowhere else to be. He didn't care if there was a football game on later. He wasn't in a hurry to get to lunch to beat the other Christians after church. You think Joshua was checking his watch? Moses is meeting with God. Hey, hey, guys, it's been an hour and um, the service is only supposed to last an hour. God, you've been speaking for 31 minutes now. Um, time to go. Sorry, it's all I got. This wasn't some religious duty. He was meeting with God. Where, where else do you have to be when you're meeting with God? So Joshua would, would stay behind. The two on the road to Emmaus stay with us. There's, there's, there's nothing better than talking with you, than being with you being in your presence. There's, there's nothing better. And so they sit down to eat and it says, when he broke the bread, their eyes were open. Maybe, maybe they remember Jesus breaking the bread to feed the 5,000, to feed the 4,000. Maybe they remember Jesus breaking the bread at the last 
Supper, saying this is my body that was broken for you. We, we don't know, but, it, but when he broke the bread, it says their eyes were opened. And it was at that moment they believed. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember that moment where God removed the veil and all of a sudden you could see the glory of the gospel, the, the beauty of the cross? Do, do you remember that moment? I, I do. I remember being in first grade, Trinity Christian School here in Lubbock. My teacher sharing the gospel. I'd heard it many times. I grew up at a Christian school, went to church every week. But oh, I remember that moment. Where God broke into the routine, where he removed the veil. And I remember that moment praying crisscross applesauce right as a first grader in that corner with my teacher telling our Bible story, explaining the gospel, inviting us to pray and to give our lives to Jesus. I remember that moment. I could go right back to that room, right back to the same spot, right where I was sitting in that room as a first grader. When I remember believe in that moment, believing I have sinned against God. There's a fine, there's a penalty for my sin but Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sin. And I gave my life to Jesus in that moment. I remember that moment. Do you remember that moment? When your eyes were opened and you saw the beauty and glory of the gospel and you gave your life to Jesus. It's no wonder in verse 32, it says our hearts were burning you've given your life to Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. Whether it was when you first believed or maybe a moment in worship or, or, or maybe a moment when you were studying the scripture or, or maybe a moment at church or, or a moment in prayer, like, like you, you, you heard the word of God, you experienced the, the presence of God and your heart was burning within you. No, don't remember that. Haven't had one of those moments, many of those moments. Maybe you aren't who you say you are. Maybe you've just been going through the religious routine thinking if you show up, you're kind of one of the club. And so when you're here, you, you, you are bored to tears. You are looking at your clock. You do have other places to go. Your heart's never really burned within you for the gospel or for the things of God, for spiritual heavenly things. It's probably because you aren't who you think you are. You're claiming to be something you're not. Because the scripture says when you give your life to Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, pumping and beating for spiritual, for heavenly things, for the presence of God, for the word of God. And so when we worship and when we pray and when we study the word, your heart burns within you because you've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you and setting your heart on fire as you're encountering the very God who dwells within you by his spirit. And so your heart burns. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. 
And if you don't, you really need to test yourself. You really need to examine yourself and see whether, as Paul would say, you're really in the faith. Or like Jesus would say in Matthew 7, you can claim all day that you know me. That doesn't make it true. And I pray that before you meet Jesus, you figure that out. The reality, like not the fake mask, but you figure out reality because Jesus said, there's gonna be a lot of people on that day. They're gonna say, Lord, Lord, I I did all these things and, and, and we know you and Jesus is gonna say, but I don't know you, depart from me. I never knew you. Their hearts burned within them and they wanted to stay with Jesus. It's the cry of every Christian. Verse 33, and within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. They found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. And then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. They see Jesus in their midst and they still think it's a ghost. It can't be real. He can't have risen from the grave. Verse 38, why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghost don't have bodies as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they washed. This is no ghost. Jesus is like, touch my hands, touch my feet. Give me something to eat right? Give me something to drink. It's not going to just pass through my body like in the cartoons, you know? It's like, I'm not a ghost. He's got a resurrection glorified body. And so they recognize him. And for believers in Christ, when you die and go to heaven, or if you're alive, when Jesus returns, you will receive one day, a glorified, resurrected body. And we'll, we'll know each other. We'll recognize each other. It will be material. It's not immaterial. It's not, there's no, there's, it's not a ghost. It's a resurrection, glorified body. They're fearful. They're, 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 they're doubtful. Again, a key feature of this text that we've been in is the surprise among the disciples that Jesus has raised. Among the women, the disciples and the Emmaus travelers, there's no hint that resurrection was anticipated. And so this surprise is important because it shows that even Jesus' own followers had to be convinced of his resurrection. They were not a gullible group of people that simply took the resurrection as a given. They were the first skeptics becoming convinced that Jesus was in fact raised. And so John would write in 1 John 1 verse 1, I love this. He would say this, we proclaim that we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. We've seen with our eyes and we've touched with our hands. Jesus has been physically raised from the dead. 
They're not believing what someone else told them. In fact, they didn't, right? The women saw and told them and they didn't believe it. They're not believing what someone else told them. They are claiming to be eyewitnesses that they saw Jesus risen from the grave and that they touched him. So that means they are ones that are in position to know if what they are saying is true or false. They're not communicating something that somebody told them. They're saying they are eyewitnesses, which means they are in position to know that whether what they are saying is true or false. Every one of these men would end up dying as a martyr for their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Lots of people die for something they believe to be true, something that they were told, but the disciples died for something they knew to be true or false, and nobody dies for something they know to be false. Scholars would say, liars make bad martyrs. Nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. Verse 44, and then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for who? For all who repent, you are witnesses of all these things. Jesus reveals the true understanding of the scriptures, which is seeing the redemptive history of the scripture and how it all fits together and points to Jesus is this supernatural gift from God. It is God who enables them to understand the scriptures. And Jesus says this, since I have now been proven to be the son of God, You are my witnesses. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be a witness? Well, first of all, being a witness is a command. It's not a question. Jesus doesn't ask, hey guys, will you be my witnesses? He says, no, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And so you will be my witnesses. It's a command. It's why Peter and John and Acts, when they're before the Sanhedrin and they're told to stop speaking about Jesus and they're told to stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, Peter and John reply to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than man. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. We have to obey God because he told us that we would be his witnesses. And then secondly, a witness is someone who, talks about and tells others about the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Jesus said that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. You are witnesses of these things. We're witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that forgiveness is only for those who repent and turn to Jesus. That what Jesus did on the cross doesn't just blanket cover everyone's sin, whether they believe or not. No, Jesus is going to say, repentance in the name of Jesus, turning from the way I used to live and giving my life to Jesus, that it's through that decision to follow Jesus that there is forgiveness of sins. So there is no forgiveness of sin without Repentance, Jesus would say. 
turning to Jesus. Acts 4, verse 12, Peter and John would say this, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. There is no other way of salvation. There's only forgiveness for those who repent of their sins and give their life to Jesus. And then Jesus says this about being a witness, that we are to go to all the nations, that the gospel must go to all nations because Jesus is Lord of all the nations. And so his witnesses, Jesus is going to say, must go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And so here's what we've learned from the gospel of Luke about what a Christian believes. First of all, a Christian believes in the incarnation, that Jesus is God in a bod. Secondly, we've learned that a Christian believes in propitiation. That's a big theological word that means we believe in the suffering work of Jesus on the cross to take away the wrath of God for our sin. That he becomes our atonement, that he is our sin covering through his crucifixion on the cross and that all who repent and give their life to Jesus believe in the propitiation of Jesus, that he took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross that you and I deserved. Third, we believe in resurrection. Paul would say Jesus was raised to life for our justification, that in his resurrection, Jesus conquers sin and death. It's why Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will never die. I'm the resurrection and the life. And it's through the resurrection that Jesus proves to be who he said he was, the son of God, God in flesh. Fourth, we believe in regeneration. A person must be personally born again. James, the brother of Jesus, would say, even the demons believe in God. Personal regeneration, where you give your life to Jesus. You see, intellectual, orthodox knowledge isn't enough. We don't just believe these things happen. No, it's that I personally need Jesus and his cross. And I have an encounter with Christ that converts me. And as Jesus would say in John chapter three, where I am born again. And that's a work that only God can do. In fact, it's said of Jesus that he was raised, that the father raised Jesus from the grave. That's a passive thing that God did to his son to raise him from the grave, and that's what God does in the life of the believer. He raises you to life and to faith in Jesus in the same way that Jesus was raised to life. My daughter Nixon, I told you several months ago, I knew she understood the truths of the gospel. But I wasn't so sure that she understood that she needed Jesus and she needed the cross. And so as we continued to talk and pray, I saw that moment for her, same moment I had, where all of a sudden she realized these weren't just facts that I intellectually believe and agree to. This is about me. I've broken God's law. I need rescue. I need redemption. I can't do that for myself. 
And so there's a moment where a believer is regenerated. They are born again as they believe the gospel. And then Jesus, through his command to be witnesses, means that a Christian believes in mission. It would say in Acts that the disciples were turning the world upside down with the good news of the gospel. That's what characterizes regenerated believers. They go, they talk about Jesus. They tell other people about Jesus. They're turning the world upside down with the good news about Jesus. And so let me ask you, how many people have you shared your faith with? How many people have you brought to faith in Christ? Listen, it's why we don't hold you under and drown you when we baptize you. (laughs) You come up out of the water commissioned as a missionary, as a witness. Folks, I'm not the only one in this room that's in full-time ministry. Every single one of us are. That's what the Christian believes. You are a witness. Every last one of us are in full-time ministry. I don't care what you do for your profession and how you make money and put food on a table. You are in full-time ministry if you're a disciple of Jesus. You will be my witnesses. And then very quickly, because I am way over my time. (laughs) A Christian believes in ascension. We're gonna talk about that next week. That not only does Jesus rise from the grave, he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, Peter would say in Acts 2, has been made both Lord and Christ. So we believe in ascension. We believe next in glorification. Jesus said, where I am, you will be also. And one day, after Jesus returns, we will receive our resurrection glorified body, just like Jesus received. This is the process of glorification our spirit going to heaven when we die. Today, Jesus said last week, you will be with me in paradise. Today. And one day when Jesus returns, the receiving of a glorified, resurrected body. And then finally, we believe in revelation. He's coming back. This is what we learn from the gospel of Luke that a Christian believes. And so I wanna take you back to week one where Dr. Luke If you were here, you remember Luke was a doctor and like an investigative journalist, Luke said, I'm going to go talk to the eyewitnesses. I'm not going to believe what I'm told. I'm not going to believe the news and the story that everybody was talking about. Luke said, I'm going to go investigate all the eyewitnesses. And here's what Luke wrote in Luke chapter one, verse one. He wrote the gospel of Luke, Luke says, so that we might be certain of everything that the eyewitnesses said. And here is our big idea from week one of the gospel of Luke. It's our big idea today. The case for Christ is certain. It's certain. And you can be certain because Luke was certain. You can be certain because the eyewitnesses were certain. In fact, they were so certain that all of these things were true beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were willing to die horrible deaths as martyrs, believing that everything they said was true. 
And so we can believe without seeing, Jesus said, because Luke and, and Thomas and Peter and others believed after investigating those who saw for themselves. All Rome had to do, all the religious leaders had to do in the first century was produce the body. And Christianity is dead. The movement is over, but they couldn't. And so they said the disciples took it. <laughs> yeah, right. The disciples beat up a Roman guard and took the body? I don't think so. The disciples stole the body and then were willing to die horrible deaths as martyrs, knowing the lie that they stole the body? No, nobody believes that. Oh, it's, it's legend that developed over time. Serious scholars have proven that's not true. It's impossible for legend to have developed that fast. No, the case for Christ is certain. Frank Morrison was an atheistic author born in 1881 and he decided he was gonna write a book to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave from a legal standpoint, presenting all the facts, presenting all the evidence. He said the resurrection was a myth. And in his study of putting together all the evidence Frank Morrison became a Christian. And his book that he set out to write to disprove the resurrection became one of the premier apologetics in his day that proved the resurrection actually happened. And that book is called Who Moved the Stone? It impacted people like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, who wrote his book, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was a atheist. His wife came to know Christ, became one of those crazy, radical Jesus followers. And to prove his wife wrong, Lee Strobel had a law degree from Yale, was an investigative journalist from the Chicago Tribune. He set out to do the exact same thing Frank Morrison did to prove his wife wrong. And so he set out on this investigative journey to write a book to disprove the resurrection. And you know what happened to Lee Strobel? November, 1981, he gave his life to Jesus. And he said this in his book, The Case for Christ, he said, the case for Christ is conclusive. It's conclusive. Would you pray with me? We're gonna sing a song here in just a second that says this is my story, this is my song. It's the, the incarnation, the propitiation, the resurrection, the, the regeneration of the believer, the, the mission of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the glorification of the believer, the, the revelation that he's coming back. It, it, these, this is the story, this is the, the song of the gospel of Luke, and it's our story, it's our song praising our Savior all the day long. Is it your story? Or have you just kind of been playing the religious church game? If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, I wanna challenge you. Today is your day, now is your time. Give your life to Jesus today so that you can be forgiven of your sin, made right with God, and know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if that's you, Pull out that connect card and the seat back in front of you, fill it out, 
check that box that says I'm giving my life to Jesus and take it to the Welcome Center after the service is over. But God, we thank you for the great news that Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave. As Jesus would say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. And so Jesus, our story, our song is that we are hidden in you and you are in us. And even though we die, we will live. And so Jesus, we trust in you. We remember your words that the Christ must suffer and then be raised. We believe you at your word and we will be your witnesses. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing?